The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. This is a special edition of the program, and it is in response to the upcoming uh, elections and the questions that the 2016 presidential elections are generating. As our priests travel, we're bombarded with questions about the upcoming presidential elections, uh, now less than a month away. And so I thought it was about time that Something was said about this. Uh, <clears throat> There's a story about a little child who uh, was uh, sitting with his grandpa one day. His grandpa was reading him a story, an old fairy tale. At one point, the little boy looked up to his grandpa and said, Grandpa, do all fairy tales begin with the words, once upon a time? Not at all, sweetheart, grandpa said. Some fairy tales begin with the words, If elected, I will. And of course, there we have the biggest fairy tale of all. And people continue to believe the biggest fairy tale of all. But politicians tell them that he or she will do. Well, our country is in the throes of another, uh, another fairy tale. Unfortunately, fairy tales often become nightmares. We read about the original Brothers Grimm fairy tales and how actually they were the stuff of which nightmares are made. It seems like we're living through these here in the United States of America right now. Many are asking as we priests travel uh, to the mission centers asking about the moral choices involved in the upcoming presidential elections facing the citizens of the United States of America. Many are asking about the moral choices facing them, or which they must face very soon. <clears throat> this affects traditional Catholics uh, with a very serious moral dilemmas here because of the characters involved. Feelings are running very high due to the sense of what is at stake. For the minds, in the minds of many, the very survival of our nation or its complete devastation. The tactics of the agents of change that we're facing uh, politically are very similar to the tactics of the modernists in the Catholic Church. We can look at the tactics that they use. We're talking about a choice between the survival of our nation or its complete devastation meaning it's changed into something not only different from what our nation actually was created to be, was established to be, but something contrary to what our nation was meant to be, totally contrary to what our nation stood for. And the tactics of the modernists are well known. The tactics of the modernists in the church to attack the church, as St. Pius X said, to change her into an entirely different entity, to completely revise the church, 
but not revitalize the church, rather to destroy the traditional church by replacing her with something alien and opposed to her. And so it is with our country, too. We face these kind of modernists, these change agents. We find them using sometimes even the same language. The modernists in the church talked about the living church. Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, warned us about this in encyclical Pashendi, which he issued September 8th, 1907. He said the modernists... Uh, were always telling us about a, a living, vital church. Well, what they meant by that was a church that was constantly evolving, constantly changing. That's that's the difference between a living church and a, and a dead church or a dying church. They mean by that a church <clears throat> that is constantly evolving, which they consider this to be the equivalent of being living, evolving, changing. Okay. And we also have uh, the change agents in the country using the expression, the living constitution. They love to talk about the living constitution in the sense that if the constitution is living, it has to be changing. The constitution must be continually undergoing change. And uh, with every new administration, with every new uh, uh, Supreme Court justice, again, the constitution has to be subject to being changed, if we can call it Alive, if we can say it's a living constitution. Of course, we know that the Catholic Church was constituted by our Lord Jesus Christ, and that its constitution was established by him, and therefore it is irreformable. That there's no power on earth that can change what our Lord has established in his gospel. In, in the church that he established, the essential things that he gave the church, that he commanded in the church, cannot be changed by anyone anyone, anywhere. Uh, He cannot be countermanded. He cannot be superseded. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave the church her constitution. Anyone who would try to change that would be tantamount to someone trying to change the gospel itself. And as St. Paul says to the Galatians, even if an angel from heaven should try to teach a different gospel other than the ones that the apostles had taught, let that very angel be anathema. Would that uh, we could say that to the modernists, that they are like these angels presuming to be from heaven, claiming to be from heaven, who are changing the very message of the gospel itself. And we, as Catholics, should say what St. Paul said. We, We had to say anathema, anathema to this whole idea. Well, the United States of America was constituted by its founding fathers, on principles of the natural law. They made this clear that they were uh, motivated by the law of God, uh, what they call the, 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 the law of God and of nature's, of nature's God. Like they were trying to base themselves on the natural law of God. They did not have the guidance of the Catholic Church, and yet they were products of a Christian heritage that was very much uh, the work of the Catholic Church. So they couldn't get around that even if they wanted to. <clears throat> and so they did still have a lot of the uh, Catholic heritage reflected in their way of thinking. Not all of them, and uh, even those who were influenced by this, it was more or less. And so there were still flaws, and sometimes serious flaws. Nonetheless, when they wrote the rules for their constitution, when they wrote the <clears throat> constitution for the fledgling United States of America, they were guarded by 
they tried to be guided by the natural law insofar as they could know it, insofar as they were not Catholics, to understand it. <clears throat> now what we're undergoing here is a revolution within the church and a revolution outside the church. We're undergoing a kind of revolution within the church and a revolution within the country to obliterate tradi the traditional church, uh, even if they found that they have to tolerate it as an extraordinary form of mass, an extraordinary form of religion. <clears throat> Their original intention was to obliterate it and make it simply go away. And so it is with the country. The country is undergoing a kind of uh, revolution now, and it really is a moral revolution to get away from the natural law of God and to replace it with, well, the living constitution. Whoever comes along, his perversions, his pet perversions, his pet um, pet theories, uh, regardless of how socialistic they may be, uh, these now become the norm, and this is the standard by which we have to proceed, it seems. <clears throat> At least this according to the revolutionaries. The very electoral process itself is under attack. And we saw this already happening in the church. Uh, we saw that when the <clears throat> modernists gained, gained power, formally under John XXIII, back in 1958, that he immediately began promoting into positions of power in the church fellow modernists. And it was kind of like, it was kind of the case of, um, of the, the wicked devil returning and finding a way in and then inviting seven other devils worse than himself. Because we find that John Twenty-Third opened the floodgates to the modernists by promoting them into the positions of, for example, being cardinals. Uh, John the Twenty-Third, for example, is the one who promoted Paul the Sixth to be a cardinal. Paul the Sixth, in turn, uh, promoted uh, John Paul the Second, Benedict Sixteenth, and um, I think it was um, let's see who promoted Francis uh, to be uh, to be a cardinal. Then uh, after him, they they kept promoting each other into these offices where they could take take control now. And, uh, and, and each time it was ramping up one level more to uh, the, the level of revolution, modernist revolution that was going on. In fact, the electoral process was changed early on by the modernists when they gained control because they saw that once they had, to control, when they had control, they had to secure control. And so you saw that the modernists began making changes in the electrical pro electoral process by which popes were made. Uh, for example, uh, the number of cardinals was limited to num the number 70. And a new cardinal could only be made uh, when one cardinal died and made room for <clears throat> a 70th cardinal, shall we say. But, but the uh, modernists immediately put into a, a practice the plan of almost doubling the number of cardinals. And what this did was enable them to to import uh, dozens of new cardinals, from 70 to 135. Uh, a few dozen new cardinals, all of them liberal, all of them modernist, younger, because that would uh, serve the purpose also of the next step in the electoral, pro electoral process, excuse me, uh, of uh, saying that any cardinal, when he reached his 80th birthday, was no longer eligible to vote for a pope. So we'd bring in this, uh, this, this flood of new, young, liberal, modernist cardinals, 
And we'd eliminate the older cardinals, the conservative cardinals, 80 years and older. And then on top of that, they weren't finished yet in their uh, manipulating this process. They actually brought in this idea that now instead of requiring a two-thirds majority vote to elect a pope, it was down to a simple majority. It was down to half plus one. And so uh, this was not only uh, uh, a very obvious uh, ploy for the modernists to take over control, it was also very dangerous, as is recognized later, because if you elect someone by a simple majority of one extra vote, uh, then you lay the process open to fraud and invalid invalidity altogether, because if even one vote is fraudulent, is extorted, whatever it might be, that might invalidate it, if any one vote is invalidated, it would mean the entire vote was a sham and a fraud and merely a putative election. And uh, so the monarchists knew exactly what they needed to do. As soon as they were in the position to, to start manipulating the process, they did that. We've seen the same efforts in the, in the country in our own country with uh, choosing a president, <clears throat> uh, the, the whole process is extremely compromised. We hear about this as to uh, the fact that George Soros has a great principal interest in these voting machines. We hear about voter fraud. We hear about the possibility of hacking uh, the elections. We hear about uh, dead people casting votes. We hear about illegal immigrants casting votes. We see this flood of immigrants who are being immigrants, as they're being called, uh, many of them terrorists, being brought into the country uh, by those who want to use this to, to uh, control the vote. Again, we see the same dirty tactics being used, the same uh, vicious and dishonest tactics being used to stack the vote for a revolution. And uh, so we shouldn't be surprised, though, those of us who've seen it happen in the church shouldn't be surprised to find that the same type of people will try to influence uh, uh, this uh, vote to gain control of the country. So that uh, anyone who might oppose them has no power, and furthermore, that anyone who opposes them, opposes them can be easily disposed of by the the new laws that will be brought into effect to contain them and to persecute them. Now, once you have the, the, the process of the elevation of the radicals into positions of power, and you get their empowerment, first by infiltration, and then by direct appointment, as we saw with John the 23rd, so we see happening in our own government here in the United States of America the direct appointment of radicals by radicals who have gained power. So our country finds itself between the devil and a hard place, as the scriptures say. We also have the expression of between the devil and the deep blue sea. Uh, sometimes we even have the expression between Satan and Beelzebub, the prince of devils, okay? Because uh, our Lord was accused of... Uh, casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, as though the power of the devil was turned against himself. We find ourselves between the devil and the hard place, the deep blue sea, wherever you want to put it, 
I mean, it's up for you to decide which is the devil and which is the deep blue sea, or which is the devil and which is the hard place. But uh, although there are many today who have decided who the devil is in this equation, um, if we take a look at the, at the candidates we're given, let's face it, we have to take a look at, realistically, who is, who is uh, waiting in the wings to become the future president of the United States of America. A decision, as I say, that our country faces just uh, within the next month. Who is it who realistically can be expected to be crowned, as it were, as the successor of Barack Obama? Well, we see that it basically comes down to two. Realistically, I mean, we have to be honest about this. The, uh, the media themselves, it seems, have anointed either uh, Donald Trump or uh, Hillary Clinton. Donald J. Trump, John Trump, or Hillary Rodham Clinton to be the successor of Barack Obama in the imperial presidency. So, uh, what does this mean in the practical order as far as the decisions that we have to make? Well, uh, perhaps with Hillary it is less uh, problematic for many people, especially traditional Catholics, who see that she is the progeny of Saul Alinsky. The stories are that she started out being kind of a Goldwater Republican, but that uh, she was radicalized by Saul Alinsky. And this seems to be, seems to be true. Uh, we have a reason for not questioning this. We see that she did, uh, uh, was counseled by him, was directed by him, uh, that in a sense he seems to have become her anti-spiritual director in a way, uh, forming her mind, forming her mindset. Uh, Saul Alinsky played a big role also in Barack Obama and his coming to power. Uh, Saul Alinsky actually was a mentor for both Obama and Clinton. Uh, we have evidence, in fact, that the former uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, Bernadine, footed the bill to send the young lawyer Barack Obama to California to take classes uh, under Alinsky, to learn Saul Alinsky's methods. And uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that one radical within the church has fostered another radical, has mentored another radical. And uh, we know that Hillary also is directly touched by Alinsky. We know that Alinsky himself wrote the rules for radicals, which he dedicated to Lucifer, calling him the first great revolutionary who actually rebelled and gained himself a kingdom. The story is it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And uh, Lucifer personifies that mentality. Uh, now, uh, Lu Alinsky takes that to himself and makes that his mantra, too. And uh, so he uh, dedicates his book to Lucifer and uh, certainly is a Luciferian in his mindset, Alinsky. And he's passed that on to the Beelzebubs of the day, his progeny. Among the progeny of Alinsky, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. We know her stand on abortion, how she supports the diabolical abortion, and uh, unflinchingly uh, stands in every way to defend uh, this murderous, satanic 
evil of abortion. Uh, we know that uh, there are many of those, many people today who have good reason to uh, question whether or not uh, she and her husband have uh, been behind the murders of people and uh, dozens of people. There are many suspicious cases that people talk about. And uh, I must say that having looked at the evidence that they present, it's a pretty serious charge and uh, very credible, I believe, very credible, such that we may be talking about a, a kind of political murder incorporated here. We see what happened at Benghazi, and that alone, that alone would be sufficient to, well, raise some uh, very, very serious charges, I think. We know all of the, uh, well, not all of them, we, we, but we know many of the accusations made against the Clinton Foundation. <clears throat> and again, uh, what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, scam that may be, okay, that, that people bring these charges up. And you, you know, when you hear about these things, uh, the, the message that you get is the word sleaze. It's, this is all very sleazy. The very least you get out of this. What, it, what does sleaze mean? Well, it has a definition. It's an, a bona fide English word. A sordid, dishonest, corrupt behavior. And this is what comes to the forefront here. Uh, as a public figure, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton certainly is subject to these judgments. Uh, her public life is an open book, or should be an open book, and so uh, this threatens to change the S in the USA to stand for sleaze. Uh, this is how uh, conservatives see her. I'm just summing up basically the conservative assessment of this woman, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, some actually see her as evil incarnate as though she were really possessed. Now, this is not impossible. This is not out of the question. Um, because so wholeheartedly has she thrown herself into the support of every evil cause that conservatives, certainly traditional Catholics, see as uh, being very hellish, that the question could easily raise itself as whether or not she is diabolically possessed. Now, there is such a thing as partial possession, where one has uh, partially surrendered his or her will to Satan's dominion. But there is such a thing as a perfect possession, as it's called, in which a person actually just wholeheartedly abandons himself and his entire will to the control of Satan. Father Gabriel Amorth, uh, who just passed away, God rest his soul, uh, wrote a book called An Exorcist Tells His Story. He wrote the book about 20 years ago. And in that book, he wrote that he believed that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin were, in fact, possessed by Satan. We might even say perfectly possessed, and that they completely abandoned their wills to the control of Satan. Um, now, one, one pundit here in the United States has made the point that if Hillary became the president of the United States of America, she would join a sisterhood of female heads of state of some of the most powerful nations on earth. Uh, Germany, Great Britain, and the United States itself. 
Uh, this sisterhood of world leaders uh, raises kind of a red flag for those who understand the program of the cultural Marxists and the Satanists and the Wiccans, because they all converge in this idea of destroying the patriarchal society and replacing it with a matriarchal society. They all have this idea. The cultural Marxist and the Satanist and the Wiccans all have this agenda of uh, doing away with the patriarchal society, which is represented by the idea of God the Father, the Blessed Trinity of the Christians, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, doing away with this whole concept of the gods of the Christians as a Blessed Trinity and replacing it with the matriarchy. <clears throat> now, the cultural Marxists and the Wiccans and the Satanists may scoff at each other in many ways and, <clears throat> and uh, uh, actually mock each other's th beliefs in many ways. Like the Wiccans will say, we don't believe in an evil spirit called Satan or Lucifer. Uh, but the fact is that they all have the same moral code and they all have the same public agenda for society of doing away with the, the God of the Christians, his Father and Son and Holy Ghost, and replacing this with a matriarchy. So when we have Hillary joining uh, May in, um, in Britain and uh, the present Prime Minister of Germany, and we have uh, her foundering in the polls because of what she's doing to that country, we begin to see a pattern here. So it's not out of the question that what this pundit remarked here is in fact what's in the offing here. But we have to understand that uh, when Hillary brings her agenda to this, it is very sinister indeed. Okay, And uh, Hillary, of course, representing the Democratic Party, um, uh, st stands for whatever the Democratic Party uh, line is, and it is encapsulated in the Democratic Party platform. If you read the Democratic Party platform, you'll have a pretty good idea of what Hillary stands for herself, taken to the nth degree. So perhaps uh, Bernie Sanders was right when he referred to it uh, throughout his debates with Hillary as the Democratic Party, because that's exactly what it is. Now, turning our uh, mind to Trump, to Donald Trump here, we have to take a look here, and we have to see uh, what exactly uh, we're dealing with in Donald Trump, because this seems to be the burning issue in the minds of many traditional Catholics. What do we do about a Donald Trump with all of his grave, grave flaws, character flaws, moral flaws, and so on? Do we trust this man? Do we invest our vote in this man? Do we invest our consciences, in a sense, in this man? Well, some thought right from the start that Donald Trump's entry into the nomination fray for the Republican Party was a deliberate attempt to simply blow up the Republican electoral process from the beginning and to throw the election to the Democrats, Hillary. Some of those who thought this way at first are more convinced than ever that that is exactly Donald Trump's role. Uh, to be the fall guy who is simply going to disgrace the Democratic Party 
to the point that people turn away in disgust. And if they don't vote for Hillary, they allow her to be elected. Others now are not so sure. Others who thought that Trump was uh, in the race simply for the sake of betraying uh, the conservatives into the hands of the leftists now are uh, having second thoughts and saying that whatever Trump's initial intentions were, that he now seems to want the presidency, that he's actually in a dog or, or cat fight with his former friends, quote-unquote, the Clintons, <clears throat> and that he really is in it to win it now. Now, there's no question that uh, Donald Trump appears to be a narcissist, a complete and absolute narcissist. I'm not speaking as a psychologist and talking about the psychological uh, clinical diagnosis of narcissism here. I'm talking about uh, what you would say, I guess, uh, to be a social pathological narcissist, if, if you want to put it that way. At least it seems that way to me anyway. Uh, to the, even to the extent that he's, he's a bright man who can do very stupid and say very stupid things because he's such a narcissist that his narcissist actually, quote-unquote, trumps his, his intelligence, his ability to reason. Now, some, some would question this, and some would say that Trump, Donald Trump is not very bright, and that the debates show very clearly, uh, the debates for the nomination for the Republican Party show clearly, and the debates that he's had so far with Hillary Clinton show clearly that he's not a very bright man. And they point out that all Hillary has to do is to point out some supposed failure or flaw in him, and he will immediately forget everything about the issues and will just start blathering on over and over again about all the things he's done, about how smart he is, about how good he is. For example, in last debate, no, nobody who's ever run for the presidency of the United States of America has understood the tax code of the United States as well as he has. He knows more about it than all of them, all of those who've ever run for president. Making statements like that, that just so clearly diminish him in the eyes of the people, even his supporters. These statements are so nonsensical and so absurd they just diminish him in the eyes of everybody. So why does he say such silly things? Is it that he's just a man who, who is not very bright? I don't think so. I just think, again, this is his narcissism speaking here. Um, there was a, a, uh, a movie recently uh, called Up, uh, in which a dog appears. Okay, A dog is part of the animated movie. And the dog, for all of his good intentions, is easily uh, distracted from whatever he's doing uh, when, everyone, when anyone uses the word squirrel. When all one has to do is say squirrel, and the dog immediately loses track of everything and becomes a manic for the squirrel and takes off for the squirrel. And I, I can't help but think that with Donald Trump, it's sort of like that, that uh, he is a bright man, but all one has to do is to say something impinging upon his achievements in his own mind, uh, what he's achieved in his own mind, or how smart he is, and immediately he forgets everything else. He, he, can't, he simply cannot help himself, but he takes off after the, after the squirrel. 
And um, in this case, he's acting like uh, he's acting like one. No way. It's so sad. It's a compulsion, but it is a compulsion of narcissists, or so I'm told, anyway. So um, now, recently, it was revealed that uh, Donald Trump made some very lewd and crude statements about women, and they're embarrassing to even bring to mind. Certainly for a priest, and certainly uh, in a program called What Catholics Believe, but. Unfortunately, these things are very indicative of the character of the man we're contemplating electing the President of the United States of America. Um, what do we expect from him, though? I mean, it's not as though he has made a secret about his flaws. He has flaunted them. He's practically boasted of them before the world. How mortifying is this? How how embarrassing this is as Americans to have this to have this stand as though this is presidential material for the United States of America but I would say it's serving this purpose you see those GOP uh, representatives these GOP officials who are outraged by Trump's words regarding women are posturing and pandering in their hypocrisy. Every one of them, it seems. As though they didn't know. As though they didn't know who this was. As though they had no idea that Trump thought this way and would openly speak this way. Even if it's on a, a live mic that he thought was not functioning. He made no secret of this. The way he's lived his life openly. He's given enough public record that they would know who they're doing with him. So how can they pretend now to be shocked by who he is and what he says and what he does? I mean, it's embarrassing to see them in their hypocrisy, posturing their own innocence and outrage, that they would never do anything like this they would never even be associated with anyone who does anything or says such terrible things. Who will believe them? Again, it's hypocrisy. Pandering to those who uh, are the critics, of course, the Democratic critics, and uh, saying, oh, you know, we would never, ever allow this. We would never do such things. As those the Democrats. As though Bill Clinton is innocent, pure as the driven snow of these things. I mean, please, please don't insult our intelligence, okay? Whether you're Republicans or Democrats, don't insult our intelligence, okay? Um, because we know, we know what we're dealing with here, and each and every one of you, it seems. And how you've proven that um, you cannot be relied upon. To fulfill your promises again. Uh, not every fairy tale begins with once upon a time far, far away. No, we've seen what you've said. Uh, we've seen what you have, uh, what, you, what you've done in comparison with what you promised you would do. And we know that uh, we simply uh, do not trust you. Why should we trust you now that you're feigning Outrage 
at what Donald Trump says. Yes, you should be outraged, but where was the outrage before? Now that it's become public, and now that it's being used to tar the Republican nominee, where was your outrage before that? I'm sorry, gentlemen and ladies, you deserve this. And so many others in politics with the same corruption, Bill and Hillary themselves, and what they've, what they've tolerated, what they've actually fomented with Bill's antics. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but as far as the conservative electorate of the United States of America are concerned, are you not all of a piece with them? And do, you, do your posturing of innocence, does your posturing of innocence, does that, does that not constitute just another indication of your hypocrisy? In other words, as far as we're concerned, if I, if I can speak for conservatives, um, such as it is, what does it even mean anymore? I don't know, necessarily. But those who still hold on to the traditional values of our country, those who still hold the traditional beliefs of our faith here, as traditional Catholics, they should all stop their, uh, stop their posturing. They should all stop and say their mea culpas. That, yes, through my fault, through my fault, I am, I'm responsible, I've contributed to this. If, at least by winking at it and cooperating with it, encouraging it in that way, if I haven't actually taken part in this, this outrageous immorality, there is plenty of dirt to go around politically. You know, it reminds, it reminds me of the Pharisees dragging the woman caught in adultery before our Lord with their intention to stone her to death. And dragging her to our Lord as if you're putting him on the spot to say, well, what do you say? Should we kill her or not? You know? And so you're throwing him before the electorate. You're saying, here we have an adulterer here. What do you say? Okay. But our Lord is not there to call you out on that because he's not there to draw the line in the, in the, in the dust as he did, to draw the line in the sand and to point out your own sins there and your own fault. But I'll tell you, this foul hypocrisy is so obvious. You know what this has done? This is laying bare before the entire world and before the entire country. This is laying bare all of the filth and the corruption involved in the American political process. At least the American political processors, the people involved here. It's exposing to our country and all of the world just how corrupt American, American uh, politics has become because of the corruption of the people involved. Any pretense of morality went out the window with the presidency of William Clinton and his wife. Any pretense of morality. Before that, there was a pretense of morality, but even then, it was only a pretense in many cases. So Donald Trump is exposing to the nation and to the world the foulness and the corruption and depravity of the land of the free and the home of the, well, I guess we have to change that to the home of the depraved, of American politics at its highest levels. I don't know how many of you are even aware of the, uh, the book, The Franklin Cover-Up, or the case of the Franklin cover-up. 
that if you really want to examine issues that are before our country that have been roundly squelched <clears throat> by the American political process, you might get a copy of the Franklin cover-up and uh, start reading for yourselves what's, what's in the off what, what has been cooking on the back burner here and, and stifled there in this whole process. It is, it is truly horrific. The problem is, with what we're learning now, it is all the more credible. That there's something rotten to the core in the upper echelons of the American political process and those involved in it. Now, this might seem like uh, a tough language coming from a traditional Catholic priest, but I think we are at a crossroads here, and I do believe with those who think the very survival of the United States of America as a nation is at stake here, and whatever good is left here, there are those who say, uh, even among conservatives and traditional Catholics, well, let it fall, let it fall. But, I, you know, I don't think that's what God wants of us right now. We are meant to deal with the issue we have and to try to do whatever good we can and to avert whatever evil we may be able to revert now. Why did Our Lady appear to us at Fatima if not to give our Catholic people the guidance they need to be faithful and to take the actions they need to be faithful to God? Well, um, I, I would have to go from here now at this point to... Uh, the question of Our Lady and what she told us and what we have to do about the situation we're facing right now. And we, we are facing the question within not only our country, within the Church too, with the advent of Francis. We saw the modernists gain their foothold in John the Twenty Third, and we saw him immediately begin to uh, place his fellow modernists uh, even worse than himself, into positions of power and control in the hierarchy of the Church. And finally, it is brought thus to Francis, of all people, who, with his strident denunciation of capitalism and so on, and his ongoing uh, active promotion, even though it might be um, implicit at times, of socialism and even Marxism, uh, we've seen his political affinity with the leftists all over the world, Francis, how his agenda is their agenda. And so we come to this question here. In the church, we have no power to vote except by our prayers and by living our lives and being faithful to Christ day by day and being in the state of Christ day by day. But we do have the question of voting within our country. There are those who say the vote means nothing because it's already predetermined. The outcome is predetermined anyway. They may well be perfectly right in that. But nonetheless, in terms of the morality for the individual voter, that is a question that simply doesn't go away with all of these other reasons one might give why the vote doesn't count. The morality is still a matter of our conscience and voting what we believe is the right thing to do. And so even though we might think that uh, those who are counting the votes may never ever actually see our vote go through, if there are those who are counting the votes, um, nonetheless, God knows what we're voting for, and we still owe it to our Lord himself 
to vote our conscience, our Catholic conscience. Well, so what does it mean? For whom would we vote? If we were to vote at all, for whom would we vote? Well, we have to realize that we, uh, in looking at uh, realistic, viable candidates who could, by any stretch of the imagination, become president of the United States of America, we're basically being told there, there are two possibilities. One is uh, Donald John Trump, and the other is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, I've actually been calling for years for uh, us conservatives, traditional Catholics, to take the opportunity that God has given to us during these years and finding candidates and promoting candidates and trying to get the message across to the people. Um, of course, my efforts, like so many others, have seemed to come to nothing, so that we're, we're back where we were, or even worse. Every election that goes by, it seems that the, the rogues gallery has found even more uh, exotic rogues to put before us. <clears throat> for our for our choice, for our selection as president. Uh, of course, anybody who would step forward as a as a candidate today would have to have to face the prospect of being cut to shreds, having his reputation cut to shreds, maybe his very life cut to shreds. And the danger is all the greater as he becomes more and more a threat to the leftist powers that be. Of course, this would take a great deal of faith. A great deal of hope, a great deal of charity, a great deal of courage. But we don't seem to be able to find people like that these days who have the, the willingness and the, the, uh, even the political uh, base or even the political savoir-faire to know how to go about <clears throat> challenging this politically. I understand that there is no real political answer or solution to the problem, because ultimately the problem is a moral problem. Ultimately the problem is what Our Lady told us at Fatima was the problem. Sin. The sins of mankind. Our Lady was appealing to Catholics in particular at Fatima in 1917. Stop sinning. Rather than offer God your sins, offer him now reparation. Consecrate yourself to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Make reparation for the insults to her divine maternity, her immaculate heart, which called her to be the mother of God. The divine vocation that God gave her, the incarnation of the Son of God, is what is being attacked here in attacking her divine maternity and attacking her immaculate heart. And so she says that we must make reparation there. God wants reparation made to her immaculate heart for the insults used to attack her. God wanted the Catholic people to receive the communions of reparation on five consecutive first Saturdays. God wanted the Catholic people to meditate for 15 minutes on the first Saturdays of the month, commemorating Our Lady's Holy Saturday when Our Lord's body lay in the tomb that she and she alone had kept the faith. Our Lord asks through Our Lady at Fatima that we pray the rosary, Pray the rosary faithfully, daily. Now, the Catholic people haven't done this. By and large, they haven't done this. So we have to understand that we are at a political impasse because we're at a moral impasse. 
We're at a social impasse because we are at a moral impasse here. And this is exactly what Our Lady predicted. We couldn't expect anything else to be the case. Because what Our Lady said is true. Our Lady's words have proven true. With the spreading of the errors of Russia throughout the world, the coming of a second war even worse than the first. Famines and wars and even the annihilation of nations and the destruction of faith, the destruction of faith itself. It's all come to pass. Why would we expect anything different? Well, as what Our Lady predicted would be the case, has in fact come to pass. So we look at her solutions and we say, this is what we must do now. This is the only way out of this mess that we've made. <clears throat> it is the only way that we have any hope to hear her voice and answer her call to do what she said we'd have to do. With regard to this particular matter of who to vote for, though, we have, to, we have to face the fact that realistically we only have two candidates that are, we're allowed to have who have any realistic opportunity or possibility of becoming president of the United States of America. That's a fact. It's, a, it's practically a fait accompli. <laughs> uh, that we, we have to accept that. The other thing we have to accept is this. No matter who we elect, that the person whom we elect is going to have very little power to influence anything for good. Because even if elected, if we're going to expect the Constitution to be followed, they can be checked by Congress and can be checked by the Supreme Court. And they can be boxed in and so rendered impotent in whatever good they try to do by the leftists who are already in positions of power. If you had a worthy president of the United States, the leftists in Congress and the leftists in the court, you know that they're going to try to neutralize and perhaps even liquidate any worthy president of the United States of America. So let's face reality here. These people... Uh, do not uh, take lightly opposition against them. We have to always remember ourselves. These are the people who promote the wanton murder of innocent babies by the millions. They profit from it. They are elected by votes that are cast to support it. This is their lifeline to support these leftist evil causes. They, they don't hesitate at anything. There is nothing that is beneath them in order to secure power, and once they've got it, to retain it. There's nothing that they will not do. And so we have to simply face this fact. This idea of, well, we're going to elect the President of the United States of America, and that's going to change everything. Have we ourselves forgotten what the Constitution is all about? We accuse them, uh, the leftists, of uh, simply discarding the Constitution. And here we're living in constitutional fantasy land and thinking that we can elect a president and that's going to make all the problems go away. It's not, <clears throat> even if we could. 
And so basically we're presented with one choice, a choice between two alternatives, okay? And so the question is, well, if we're going to vote at all, we certainly have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And as soon as one says this, then, then somebody immediately says, well, the lesser of two evils is still an evil. And I would say to them, that's right. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, lesser of two evils, we're saying they're both evil. So the lesser of two evils is still an evil. We already agreed on that. What's your point? And their point evidently is, well, you can't vote for an evil <clears throat> no matter what. And the answer is, sometimes you have to, to avoid a greater evil. In Catholic moral theology, there is the principle of the voluntarium indirectum. In Latin, I mean, we all do. The Catholic seminarians and priests have been studying this for centuries now. The voluntarium indirectum is what we render in English as <clears throat> precisely the principle of double effect or being in a situation where all of the alternatives lead to some evil consequence. One of the cases we're given is the case of a, of a driver. Let's say, uh, let's, let's take a case of a, a school bus driver. If we're going to propose a case, I suggest we do, to illustrate the point, let's say we take the case of a school bus driver who suddenly realizes his or her brakes have given out. And the school bus driver is careening down the highway and is headed toward a cliff and cannot possibly uh, veer left or right without uh, careening into a, uh, let's say, a schoolyard full of playing children on the one hand, or let's say a wedding party exiting a church on the other hand. It's turning right or left or going straight forward. What does the person do? The person who is driving that bus has to make, in, in some cases, a split-second decision as to what do I do? to do the least damage. I know that no matter what I do, I'm placing, a, let's say, a grave risk. So many people. And I don't see an alternative that, that will en enable me to avoid putting someone at risk. What do I do? Do I hold course and plunge over the cliff with a school bus full of children? If I'm bringing them to school, do I pull into, do I, do I race into a parking lot full of playing children? Maybe saving the children who are on board my bus, but who knows how many children I'm putting at risk by running into the school, the schoolyard? Or do I plow into a churchyard full of a wedding party that has just come out of the church? And they're waiting for the bride and the groom to appear. Maybe they've just appeared. Whom do I attack with this, this missile of a bus? And I'm the one at the steering wheel. But I've, not, no, I've got no brakes. I have no alternatives. Do situations like that actually happen? Yes, they can arise. That's an extreme example. I understand that. But the fact is, the principle remains what it is. What do you do? But it seems that no matter what you do, 
you're going to be the author of, unwilling author of, terrible, terrible damage. And damage to innocent people. Those situations can arise, you know. In some circumstances, you have to do something. You don't have the option of doing nothing. We'll get back to that in a minute, because someone might say, well, then I have the choice of not voting at all. Well, okay, hold, put that thought on hold for a minute. <clears throat> but the, the situation could be that... Um, in life, this, this could happen to you, that you have to do something and there's going to be some bad consequence that will follow from it. Well, there is the, the question of the indirect voluntary, meaning that it is not something that you want for its own sake. It's something that you would want to avoid. But what you're doing in a case like this when you're driving the bus is if you turn the wheel one way or the other, it's not because you're thinking, I want to kill children, so I'm going to pull into the schoolyard. It's not the idea that I want to kill the children on the bus, so I'm going to drive over the cliff. And it's not that you want to kill the people in the wedding party, so I'm going to drive deliberately into the schoolyard. It's not what you're turning toward, but what you're turning away from. You want to avoid doing this evil over here. And you realize the danger of doing evil over here. But you have to decide which is the lesser evil that can result. And leave the rest to God to hopefully protect the people if you can possibly thread the needle, even have a miracle, and not kill anyone. Well, the moral obligation in a case like that, if the driver of the bus would have a chance to think about it, the moral obligation is, is to do as little damage as possible. Whatever would offer that person the prospect of hurting or even killing as few people as possible. That would be the choice that they would have to make. And they have the intention of killing no one if they possibly can. And they'll avoid, to the extent as possible, killing anyone. But sometimes, is that possible? You have the case of a, uh, a, a military uh, operative of our country, or the case of a soldier, who has a hand grenade thrown into, let's say, the, <clears throat> the bunker where he or nowadays she is <clears throat> with uh, fellow soldiers. That soldier in throwing himself on that hand grenade is not committing suicide. We know that. That soldier is sacrificing himself to save his fellow soldiers, even though the direct wanton killing of oneself, suicide is actually a greater evil than homicide. Because our Lord uses the love of one's own life as a standard by which we should love the lives of others. Suicide is actually considered to be a worse sin than homicide. But the soldier who throws himself on a live hand grenade to save his fellow soldiers is considered to be like a secular martyr, someone who did that, even if not out of love for God, 
out of a love for his fellow soldiers to save them, and is rightly regarded with admiration and sometimes even rewarded with our nation's highest honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. How many soldiers have sacrificed themselves in our American history to save the lives of their fellow soldiers and been, been honored by our country for having done that? That is not the work of someone who wants to die. It's not the, someone, not the work of someone who wants to commit suicide. But it's the work of someone who selflessly is willing to die to save others from death. So there is really this principle of the indirect voluntary or the principle of double effect, which is very well known by ethicists and moral theologians everywhere. The question comes in with this, you see, the question of voting. If one can discern, if one can actually decide that one of these two candidates is the lesser of two evils, and I agree, uh, this, is, this is grounds for discussion, but if one really is convinced, or at least has um, not metaphysical certitude, but if he has a, a strong likelihood in his opinion that one candidate is the lesser of, of the two evils offered, and realizes that this means securing our borders against invasion uh, and, and the annihilation of our country as a political and social entity. If one candidate represents hope in stemming or, or uh, at least um, closing off the abortion industry, if one candidate represents hope for the saving of thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives by abortion. If one candidate represents any real hope of accomplishing that, then there is a moral obligation to choose that lesser of evils and to vote for that. You're not exactly voting for one candidate, you're actually voting against the other. That's actually what your vote means. You're not saying, I agree with what that candidate stands for, and that's why I'm voting for him. What you're saying is, I think that this candidate gives hope of saving lives that otherwise would be lost, or averting evils that otherwise would be done. And so my vote is a vote against this, these evils, in vote, casting my vote the way I do. That's a, real, that's a real thing. It's not something you can just dismiss if you don't like it. It is a real thing. And the life of every child who might not be aborted, that is hanging in the balance there, well, that's how real that vote is. It's a real thing. It's a real issue. No one can argue the candidates, they're strengths and weaknesses, the good and bad points. I would, I would offer this as a means of trying to decide. <clears throat> and, and this is something I don't hear. I don't hear when I'm out there traveling around the missions. I don't hear people saying this. I don't know why. 
Maybe it's a nonsensical idea, but it just seems to be, for what it's worth, that if you're in doubt about whether you should vote, cast a vote in this presidential election. Uh, if you're in doubt as to whether you should uh, vote for one person or another, vote against one person or another, then read the party platforms. Read the party platform of the Democratic Party. Read the party platform of the Republican Party. And if nothing else, you can cast your vote for the party platform. If you read the party platform, and the platform in principle represents what you largely believe is right and true, the question of whether the candidates themselves will follow those party platforms is actually another question. But your vote can be for the party platform. If all else fails, you can vote that way. Unfortunately, the question of whether the candidate will live up to the party platform, well, I realize that there we might back be we might be back in the realm of fairy tales. If elected, I will. Yes, we might be back into fairy tales again. But at least the party platform is a tangible thing. At least you have the promises that are made there to kind of hold them to and to tell God, this is what I voted for. Not that person, but what that person claimed to represent. We shouldn't be surprised, though, to find our country living a nightmare of a fairy tale. St. Paul wrote about this long ago. His second epistle to St. Timothy, chapter 4. Open your sacred scriptures, open your Bibles at home. Second Timothy, chapter 4, read it for yourselves. Verse 3, this is what St. Paul says. For there shall come a time, for there shall be a time, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will heap up to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And, the fourth verse, they will indeed turn away their hearing from the truth, but will be turned unto fables. They will be turned unto fables. Well, unfortunately, to to turn away your hearing from the truth of faith, which is what our nation has done, to the, from the truths of our faith, to the fables of the politicians. This is what our nation has done, generation after generation after generation. And now we are merely living the nightmare. And it might become a nightmare from which Mankind cannot awaken for centuries to come. Now, there are, there are those who uh, tell us that this or that candidate is vice incarnate. Well, if you read the encyclical of Pope St. Pius X about the modernists, you find 
that St. Pius X has given us the two basic characteristics of the modernists. He said, this is what will characterize them when you see them, recognize that. Under a pretense of innocence, under a pretense of goodwill, even under a pretense of loving Christ in the church, he said, they will have the characteristics of pride and audacity. That's what he says. Basic characteristics, after he talks about their show of love for the church <clears throat> and all of the gushing about Jesus Christ, the Lord, and all that, they will show their true colors in their pride and their boldness, their audacity, shamelessness. And I dare say this is exactly what we've seen happening with the modernists in the church and the politicians in America. And this is where it has brought us now. Their pride and their shameless audacity have brought us to this point here. The question is, what do we, what do, we do about it? What can we do within the realms of morality, within the realms of even legality now. Well, one thing we can do is in this upcoming election, try to determine as dispassionately as possible, because we know what is at stake, if there is a candidate whom we would consider to be the least of all evils, who can actually avert evils, who actually has the possibility of getting into a position who can avert evil things. And then cast your vote against the one who would do the evil things to try to, as much as possible to prevent them. If that means voting the party platform, well, then so be it. I don't have any better ideas right now. If you do, I'm open to your suggestions. One thing for sure we must all agree upon. We must do what Our Lady says at Fatima. We must do what Our Lady told us. We must stop offending God by our sins. We must instead offer to Almighty God reparation for the sins that are committed against Him. We must honor the Immaculate Heart of Mary by consecrating ourselves to her Immaculate Heart. And we must offer reparation to the Immaculate Heart for the blasphemies directed against her and who or against her divine motherhood. We must pray the rosary, really pray the rosary, not just say it, pray the rosary every day. And, of course, um, we have to be in the state of grace to do all of this worthily. We have to Make the intention and carry it out to receive our Lord in Holy Communion worthily for those five first Saturdays of the month, the five first Saturdays that Our Lady asked for. Meditate on the Passion of our Lord and again include the Rosary as Our Lady's Prayer. We may not realize it but when we pray the rosary, we are uniting our hearts with the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Why? 
Because, as the Gospel tells us, our Blessed Mother was where the Gospel was first written. The Gospel was first written in her heart. The Gospel tells us that Mary kept all these things of our Lord's life, pondering them within her heart. That's what the Gospel tells us. That was the Immaculate Heart of Mary. She kept all these things, the memories of these things of our Lord's words and actions. She pondered them in her heart. She meditated upon them. That's where the gospel was first being written, in her heart. And when you pray the rosary, that's what you do. You ponder the very things that Mary pondered in her immaculate heart. You really do. Unite your heart with hers when you pray the rosary. There's no better way to honor her and her divine son. God bless you.